Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest on the podcast today is Tapio Schneider. That's right. Tapio is without question one of the most important and influential climate scientists of his generation, which is also my generation, by the way. And on a personal level, he's important to this podcasting team because he's an old friend of mine, and he was Melanie's postdoc advisor. So it was always obvious that we should have Tapio on here, and it was just a question of when. Then once we asked him, it took a while to say yes, but he did, and so here we are. The array of topics on which Tapio has made major contributions and the magnitude and impact of those contributions is astonishing. Tapio's early work on the general circulation of the atmosphere changed the field. It just did. I teach Hadley circulation theory in my classes to graduate students, and I teach it a lot differently than I learned it when I was in grad school, and that's because of Tapio's work. Then Tapio did a whole set of studies on planetary atmospheres, then he got into marine stratocumulus and the parameterization of those clouds and models, and that led to studies of clouds and climate more broadly, and eventually to rethinking how climate models should work from the ground up, which he's now executing. Oh, and along the way, in the early days, he wrote a few papers on statistical methods, and those were almost an afterthought for him, as we talk about, but they were, and still are, hugely influential. So we talk about how all that happened, starting from Tapio's childhood, just on the west side of the border with East Germany during the Cold War, and then how he came to the U.S. and ended up doing his Ph.D. with Isaac Held at Princeton, and then making his way to his current position at Caltech, where he still is. Tapio is low-key, calm, but deadly serious, and always focused on the long-term goal. He had cancer as a grad student. Pretty serious. Maybe not the very worst kind, but still kind of life-threatening and requiring harsh treatment. But somehow, it didn't slow him down. He describes it as having been just like any other problem. You solve it one step at a time. So, that's Tapio. For the last few years, Tapio has been leading the Klima Project at Caltech, which is building a new type of climate model, making greater use of observations, machine learning, and high-resolution simulations. It's an amazing project. Visionary. Hard to execute, but he's pulling it off. So we talk about how that started, how it's going, the tensions of running what looks a lot like a startup within the university, and his ambitions for what it will achieve. It was a great conversation. I've known Tapio a long time, but I learned some things I hadn't known about him. One technical note, we recorded this in Tapio's hotel room in Chicago, where we both were last December for the American Geophysical Union fall meeting. I didn't know till I got to Chicago that we were going to do it, and so I hadn't brought my good mics and all my other gear for live recording, so I took a risk and improvised. We recorded this using the setup that I use for remote interviews, even though we were in the same room with me on a Bluetooth headset mic. And it turns out that doesn't work so great. So Tapio sounds fine, but I sound kind of crummy. It's intelligible enough, though, and I think it's worth the time to listen. So here's my conversation with Tapio Schneider. Thanks for doing this, Tapio. Nice to be here with you, Adam. As you know, we like to start with biography. So where are you born, Tapio? I was born and grew up in Germany, and yes. a small town at the border between East and West Germany at the time. And I'm trying to think, wait, oh, and you are old enough that it was East and West Germany. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. I all fell when I was 17. Okay, yeah. I feel like I want to ask about that now. I never thought to talk about that with you. Where, what, what, what's the name of the place? Um, the next bigger town was Braunschweig, and I okay. actually grew up outside Braunschweig. I went to school in Braunschweig, and it was a town... 
what's in German is called Zonenrandgebiet. It's a border region. It had a large train station um, built before there was a border from which trains wouldn't go very far at that point. So. <laughs> right. right. And so, I mean, tell me about being a child in this place. Well, first of all, your family, your mom's from Finland? My right? mom is from Finland. My dad ended up in Germany coming from, from the east, what's now Poland, as a refugee after the Second World War. Oh, yeah. Okay. I didn't know that. And you speak both languages? I speak German primarily. My Finnish was technically my first language, but I don't speak it well anymore. Yeah. And um, what was the so did you, was the the border being there and the and the east west split of, of something you were acutely aware of in your oh yeah I mean I was most most of my time well most of the uh, the wake time perhaps I spent uh, skiing and doing sports as a teenager and we would ski right at the border between east and west i mean you could literally ski at the border and you would have wow. the east german border patrol skiing two meters away from you wow with, um their ak-47 and snowsuits so if you like made a wrong turn you would end up over over the border kind of thing or, or? you i mean there was <laughs> technically yes you could but of course i mean the border was out in the green there the, the actual border the border fortifications were set back a bit. There were right. uh, several sets of fences and the like that were a bit, <laughs> right. a bit behind. But there were patrols on the on the western side of the fences from the east. And so how did things change in 89? Dramatically, obviously. It was, uh, you know, the summer of 89, you see, you see the large changes coming through the east. But even though you saw there were massive demonstrations, there were refugees in the embassies and... Hungary, for example, the actual event that the border between East and West Germany opened, I think, caught all of us by surprise. I mean, it was literally a statement on television that someone read. Someone was slipped a note reading the statement. Yes, people can travel, this, and yeah. it just seemed flabbergasting. And everyone went to the border, and in fact, people could travel. And it was uh, the first days. You know, I was seventeen, and it was just a giant party with people from the East. Yeah, they came just pouring over into your town, and yeah. Yeah. And some of them did. Some of them like never leave, or actually, many many migrated across the border. Yeah, I don't know the exact numbers, but it was especially among the younger generations. A lot went to the west and bought western cars and the like. So, how did life change in the in, in the like if you compare a year after to a year before? I mean, for us in the end, not, not much, obviously, right? It was yeah. the initial excitement. Um, it just took only a year really to unify the countries and it was pretty remarkable how quickly that moved um and of course a few kilometers in the east it, it was a dramatic change in yeah. people's lives but for us it yeah not so much anyway tell me about yourself as a kid i mean were you interested in science from the beginning i was interested in science i was always interested in science and understanding the world around me the natural world around me but i didn't know really about science as a career what are you what are, what did your folks do uh, my mother she's a biologist she was teaching um high school my father was a civil engineer by training like was teaching my mother is a scientist but i think not scientist the way you and i are scientists that she was working as a scientist and not I, a researcher not a researcher yeah uh, she was working in natural history museum early on mm -hmm. um she was she's very interested in, mm -hmm. in science and biology 
but as a career, as, as something that people do for a job, it wasn't really on the map for me. Mm-hmm. What was on the map? You know, it was the height of the Cold War. I mean, you heard about nuclear war being the greatest threat. People didn't think all that much about careers at all, I would say. Really? It wasn't, no. We did, you know, with, I ended up studying physics and math and with my friends. I mean, we did it because we were interested in it and we wanted to learn about yeah. it. But yeah. as a career, if you ask any one of us, it's, I had to write, I had a fellowship that funded some of my studies and I had to write um, essays every, every term about what I'm doing and what I'm thinking. So I actually could go back and look what I was thinking. I would say things like, I'll pray for an insurance one day or something. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, I, not that I was career oriented. I mean, we weren't either, but. So where did you do the, where did you do the studies in physics? I, sh- I shouldn't know. I was in, in Freiburg in the Southwest of Germany. In Freiburg. That's on the, on the Black Forest. Yeah, I know. I've been, I know it's a big university. The, uh, the main reason to go there is that it was a short train ride to a good cross-country skiing area. And that was... Oh, come on. It's main. a great university. It is a great university. But in, in choosing universities in Germany, it's not... At the, at the time, there wasn't you know, good and bad universities or things like that. They were all sort of meddling. And it, it, They're supposed it, to be all the same. Is the, is the, supposedly. Yeah, yeah, Freiburg is an old university, but really the main choice, the main reason I went there is... Uh, because it was close to Black Forest, and I could, I could ski there. Okay, are you still skiing now? I still ski. I mean, at the time I was competing, that was really really. Oh yeah, that was a large part of my life. The main part of. Oh well, yeah, yeah, I didn't know this. Yeah. yeah. Competing to like tell me the context. Like competing, there's yeah, it was in cross country skiing in winter and doing in summer. You know things you do in summer. It's biking, running. Triathlon came up at the time. I did some triathlon, duathlon. Wow, I didn't know this. You were a serious athlete. I I was, yeah. From like what ages? What ages? Um, I mean, I'd always been involved in sports, so endurance sports. I think I probably started seriously seventh grade or so. And this is like not through school, right? This is a this no, is a, so it's a regional uh, yeah competition so league or something. Well, in Germany, these things mostly don't run through schools, but through what are called clubs. But yeah. these clubs are voluntary associations for the most part. So I had a cross-country ski club. I had a ski cabin up in the mountains nearby. <laughs> and I spent spent most of my winter weekends there. The reason I'm laughing is because many years ago, when you and I had only recently come to know each other, we, as you probably remember, we organized a conference together. And, and I have this memory that has stuck with me, which is that after the conference, when we wanted to, uh, I, I wanted to write a little BAMS, uh, Bolton of the American Meteorological Society article, a little workshop report, you know, to say what we had done. And you were a little skeptical of the, that there was any point to doing this. And I still remember you said, oh, those things, you really read those things? It's like the, it's like the um, animals of the ski club or something. <laughs> Did I say that? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, wow. So, how, so, so, so it continued till when? When did you stop being a, a um, athlete? Beginning college, college I, uh, so this would be 1992, perhaps. Uh-huh. What happened? What happened? I think several things. I, I mean, on the most basic level, it was clear that there were younger people who got better, and I wasn't getting all that much better. And right. it was sort of, it was a really large part of my life. Several. Hours so up to that day. point, you had you considered being a professional athlete, or um, not of- really? 
I was pretty good, but it was clear that as a career, this doesn't make sense. I mean, there are people who were better. So I think that was one reason. I think then approximate cause, a pretty bad appendicitis that kind of, kind of ended that season. And mm-hmm. then uh, actually next year I came to the U.S. So, so that, that was it. So so tell me about that. When, uh, I know you came to the University of Washington, right? Yeah. So how did that happen and what was the... It was just an exchange fellowship. I mean, it was clear that if you're a science student in Europe, that you had to have been in the U.S. And I wanted to get to know that country. You know, that was pre-internet, pre this yeah. abundant information we have now. So it was just... It, well, it was, yeah, it was almost pre-internet. Internet was, it was pre-internet. So there was... I mean, before there was any website or anything, maybe right. CNN came soon thereafter or something. But there was, but there wasn't this abundant information yeah, about sure. what life is like, what universities are like. And yeah. it's the only thing that was clear is that if you want to get somewhere in science, then you need to do this. And I was just wanting to know how science is done in the U.S. And but the getting somewhere in science, was that an ambition that began after Ed's career was ending? Or you, I mean, no, it, I how was the evolution of, it, of that? I, mean, I didn't still think of it science as a career. I mean, it was, it was just something I, I really wanted to learn what modern physics is like. And yeah. it, it was clear I had to go see something else to learn more about that. And so I came to the U.S. There was an exchange fellowship that I got and that got me to Seattle, to University of Washington. How did you choose that one? There wasn't a great deal of thought and choice going into it, so I got a fellowship to do this that helps. Um, I'd heard that Seattle is a pretty nice place, but mm. otherwise I didn't know much about the U.S., about different places. Right. So University of Washington has a great atmospheric science department, so yeah. how you ended up there? I mean, that must have been the first time that happened? Or? Yeah, I was in the physics department, actually. Um, oh, okay. But the atmospheric science is just, just across the street there. The, the university systems aren't entirely compatible. I, I hadn't finished a degree in Germany at that point. I mean, mm-hmm. I had done what would now get you a bachelor's degree, but I didn't have any degree. And yet I was classified as a grad student in Seattle. And it was really fun because I could learn quantum field theory, these things that I really wanted to learn from people who were outstanding um, condensed matter theorists. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed that. Um, I learned a lot from David Thaldis, for example, who later won a Nobel Prize for topological quantization. That physics, I think I was very interested in. Any, anything, anything more is different. Many particle physics is clearly what I was gravitating toward. Yet, it was clear that the physical phenomena of interest all happen, in that case, near absolute zero temperatures. Mm-hmm. So it was really far re- removed from daily life. And I yeah. realized that the physics I really like is of the physics of daily life. So physics at the energy of sunlight became my criterion of what I really want when to you say you realized this, you meant that you realized this because the other stuff somehow didn't turn you on, or had you been thinking about the physics of daily life? Well, all throughout physics, what, what was most appealing to me is explaining daily phenomena from why the sky is blue to how mm. the refrigerator works to the transistor, all the electronics that completely changed our lives, right? right. And the physics I was learning then, and it was clear it wouldn't have the same impact on daily life. Had you ever done experimental work? I was very interested in experimental work. There weren't really good opportunities for that in Freiburg. And so I ended up being more of a theorist simply because you only need a library for that. So you weren't yet concerned about global warming or anything? I was, actually. I was, yeah. No, I had, I had worried about global warming quite a bit before. Oh, tell me about that. Well, actually, it started with ski races being canceled and being moved about. And okay. there was evidently less snow when... When I was a late teenager than there was a few decades before. Mm. 
and I knew the stories from you know, a few decades before how much snow there was. So mm. races kept being canceled, and I started to wonder why that is, and I started learning about global warming. I was I was quite concerned about it, and you know this is how I ended up doing what I do. I realized I like to do some physics at energies of sunlight, and um, mm-hmm. the atmosphere was right there, and it matters. It, because of global warming and so right and surely you realized quickly that you have one of the best departments right there so yes i i i did talk with people then i did a research project actually with dennis hartman mm-hmm. at the university of washington that was my first introduction to, to the atmospheric sciences yeah then i applied for grad school and and state so the exchange part of the exchange fellowship didn't really take place oh, you never went back to germany after that no yeah and you told me once you never actually got a bachelor's degree? No, I no, it was kind of interesting. So I didn't I didn't finish a degree. I at the University of Washington I then did everything you need to do to get a master's in physics. Right. And I actually applied for the degree and I got a letter that I can't get the master's because I don't have the bachelor's degree. And I was briefly worried about that in Princeton, but it was <laughs> never an issue. <laughs> so some, during this time you realized that climate was the thing, because that's what you applied to do at Princeton. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Did you like apply to lots of schools like people do nowadays, or you knew where you wanted to go? Or you... No, I didn't have a whole lot of money, so I only applied in Princeton. And okay. I had an alternative career thought out, um, a PhD in quantum information that was sort of the plan B. Uh-huh, yeah. So you go to Princeton. Had you identified Isaac Held as the person to work with from the beginning? He was, I think at the top of my list of people I was interested in working in. And again, this is pre-internet. You couldn't search what people were doing. So there were just these citation databases inspected right. like you look for papers. And and I realized that Isaac was doing the type of work I'm interested in. And more generally, in GFDL was doing the type of work I'm interested in, focusing on the fundamentals of the science. But there is an eye towards prediction, practical aspects of climate modeling. And that was very appealing to me about GFDL. So you'd read the literature a lot. Yeah. This point. yeah, I mean, yeah. a lot. I read a lot of papers. So you get there. I'm trying to think when is this? You probably so that was in Seattle '94, '95, and then Princeton '95. Right, right. Let's talk about your thesis work because it became a lot of what you did for some years after that, right? Yeah, I was interested in, I mean, broadly the general circulation, how it works, right? What controls polar equator temperature gradients, the temperature distribution in the vertical, what controls the distribution of winds, mm-hmm. rainfall. And I was working for what was meant to be my thesis. It didn't actually become the thesis on, on theories for the general circulation. I had pretty ambitious plans. It turned out to be slightly too ambitious, and that, that didn't end up becoming my thesis. It didn't finish what I wanted to finish by the time it was time to graduate. And um, mm-hmm. What became my thesis were some pieces on, on data analysis I had more or less done on the side. Is that right? I mean, I know you wrote a bunch of papers on statistics, and they're very influential, but I didn't realize that's what your thesis was. It became the thesis just because the other things weren't... I mean, I had written good chunks of what was meant to be the thesis, but it wasn't done when... Was the thesis plan something you came in with, kind of well-formed in your... No, no. I mean, that was strongly influenced by Isaac. I didn't know this right away, but this question of the vertical temperature stratification was what he was working on in his thesis. And yeah, well, I, didn't, I know it went way yeah. back with him. That's why I asked. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. So maybe we should explain it briefly. Maybe we should say yeah. a few words about what the problem is. Explaining what controls the rate of temperature decrease with respect to height in the atmosphere. In the tropics, yeah. we have good theories. It's moist convection that controls it. Hmm. In the extratropics, the 
large-scale turbulence weather systems are clearly playing a role as well. But we don't have a quant or didn't have a quantitative theory of of how that works in the extratropics, and that's what I was working on. Right. And it it comes down to coming up with a theory for the extratropical turbulence. Yeah, and with the turbulence here being very large scale, thousand kilometer scale yeah, weather systems, the yeah. storms of yeah. uh, of the extratropics, and the reigning theory since the forties of how to think about these. Uh, extratropical motions is quasi-geostrophic theory in which the stratification yeah. is taken for granted. So, right. so it's a kind of gap in the... Right. In so their destratification is prescribed and the question is what controls it. It was a good time to work on it because it was just a moment when you could run general circulation models, 3D general circulation models for long times. You could run large, large ensembles of them and explore the parameter space broadly, look at what happens for plants with different rotation rates with uh, very different insulation gradients and the like. So you could computationally explore the problem well, and that made it exciting to work on it. And GFDL, I mean, you know, I say again, as somebody who visited, started visiting a lot during your time, but I remember it as kind of a magic place where it had this pragmatic aspect. It was building climate models and so on that were used, but it really did have a ivory tower feeling of fewer thought, I mean, especially Isaac's office, but, you know, more right. generally, in a way that I don't think they or anyone else have been able to sustain. I mean, it's sort of hard to do that, live like that anymore, anywhere. It was a great freedom people had that my understanding is isn't quite there anymore, yes. So you're there for five years. Did you get involved in the model development? No, not at the time. It, it was a time where there was a major rewrite of the model that Paul Kushner, Jeff Anderson, and others led, and I was quite interested in what they're doing and admiring what they were doing. But I remember thinking and saying at the time that I want to develop a climate model once you can write a climate model, a bit like MATLAB code on that level of simplicity. And that wasn't the time then. Yeah. And this was, I'm trying to remember when Manabi retired. I have the sense that this is when Isaac kind of took over the climate model. Yeah. Isaac led the climate modeling. That was towards the end of my PhD, I believe. But that was the first time that it happened, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Jerry Malman was still director of GFDL when I was there, and that model went back, I believe, to Jerry's work. Yeah, yeah right. And should we talk about your health issues during this time? Well, we can. I moved from Seattle to Princeton, and I uh, had intended to do the move by bicycle, and um, <laughs> didn't fully make it in the end. I was biking with a friend across the country for two months, I believe. We got a bit bored in the Great Plains, and we ended up going south back into the Rockies and took a, took a bus for the rest of the trip to the East Coast. But mm-hmm. I had some, some strange skin issues on, on that bike, bike trip that um, a few months later turned out to be early symptoms of lymphoma. So my first year in grad school, I had to deal with cancer treatment. And, you know, it's fortunately pretty treatable, short-term, effective, long-term, toxic. It's the nature of these things, but... It's chemo or radiation or all I, I had primarily radiation, yeah. but it was over most of my upper body. I mean, I had radiation in a way that's not being used anymore because it has high um, cardiovascular toxicity, pulmonary toxicity, and so uh-huh. it leads to problems later on, and I've had some problems later on. But anyway, it's, it's effective, and um, it was coloring definitely my first year, my first two years of grad school. Did, I mean, when you got this diagnosis, did, was it like, did they, was it kind of like, it's treatable, it's not going to be fun, but you're going to be okay? Or was it, was it scarier than that? I mean, I, I, I did what you do. You go to the library and read about it. And so I knew that 
Well, now, yeah, nowadays people Google it and then they, and then they see the worst outcome. No, I went to the hospital library. Right? <laughs> so I knew it was fairly treatable. And I, I actually knew someone who had the same same type before me. So uh-huh. I knew this this has a reasonably good chance of, um, you know, five-year survival statistic is, is what people look at. I knew the five-year five survival statistics are favorable. Right. And that was enough to keep you calm. I mean, for many people, it would have been very hard to start a PhD program under such uh, trying uh, circumstances. Yes, I've always been calm. I mean, no, let's you deal with it the way you solve any other problem. It's just one step at a time. Yeah. Some people do that. Some, some, people, some people have a harder time. I mean, I remember hearing about this when I first met you. I think Isaac said, oh, yeah, it's pretty scary. He's, got, you know, he's sick, but he's, doing, he's a great, great student. But he, yeah. Uh, no, I mean, it was... I think the treatment cancer itself was, I mean, clearly a large perturbation, but not, not say, psychologically, mentally, or anything like that. Uh, that was fine. I think it was a bit later when I started having, um, started getting some lung problems. That was, I think, more of a mental blow because until that, up to that point, I was, you know, I wasn't com- a competitive athlete anymore, but I was still exercising a lot. I was biking and running and skiing when I could. And, mm-hmm. and then suddenly that became more difficult. And that was a bit disappointing. But. I mean, because you finished in a typical yeah, amount of time, or maybe faster than. Yeah. So. No, I mean, it didn't really slow me down. I don't think. I mean. Right. That's what I guess. That's what I'm trying to say. I, I just didn't. It's remarkable. <laughs> From an outsider <laughs> point of view, that's remarkable. Well, I mean, I had zero social life. I had a housewife, <laughs> and, and you know, you just deal with, you know, keep food down and do the things you need to do when you quit. You, had zero, you would have had zero social life anywhere because of that. No, that, you that, were just at that time work. in particular. I mean, it was just really, it was every day you had to deal with getting through a day. And I had a I had a wonderful housemate with whom I shared a house for several years in Princeton. Is this somebody from the field that we've been? Uh, she is actually now working for the state of California in in climate broadly. Okay, but I mean another graduate student. She was a grad student in mechanical engineering I and see. went to Berkeley. Do we want to do a shout out? Yeah, Susan Fisher. Yeah. She... Okay. <laughs> All right. All right. And so then what happened? I'm trying to remember. Was that when you went? Did you go to NYU? Do I don't remember correctly? After to remember yeah, correctly. after Princeton, I went to NYU. To right, because I was in New York already at that time. Yeah. Yeah, they were trying to recruit you. Yeah. Yeah. And so might have just moved. to few years maybe just a year before then to the Courant institute and right that was one of the earlier people and what now is the chaos group there right as i remember it wasn't really a postdoc it was like it was some kind of special thing that was a way of them trying to get yeah. you onto the faculty in some surreptitious way that i <laughs> yeah that's, well, what, that's what i looked from the outside yeah i mean it was it was a faculty line and the agreement was that you know because i was straight out of grad school so I hadn't even finished my thesis at that point, right? So the agreement was that I can just do research in many ways, like a postdoc for a year. I had to teach maybe one class or two classes, don't remember. I had to teach a little bit. But the agreement was that after a year, we'll all reevaluate where we want to go. How long was it there? I was there for almost not quite two years. So it was 2000. I left in the middle. No, wait, I left. I moved there in fall of 2000, and I moved to Celtic in, in summer 2002. Okay, so at NYU, you must have been starting to really do the the part of your thesis that it wasn't in your thesis. I mean, because right. that's what I remember you doing for some number of years after right. that. So I was working on general circulation theory aspects. This question of how do you represent dynamics on isentropic coordinates was something I spent a lot of time on at the time. 
Isentropic right. coordinates are nice because the this turbulence is fairly rapid, meaning it's fairly adiabatic. So the motion of air masses is roughly along surfaces of constant entropy. So it's appealing to try to describe the dynamics along those surfaces. And then yeah. the technically challenge, challenging part is how to deal with the boundary because these surfaces intersect the boundary and yes. the boundary becomes moving in that coordinate system. So it's right. some time thinking about what that implies about the turbulence and how to represent yes. it mathematically. In other words, there was a formal technical aspect. You know, you were trying to do things in a technically different, different way to solve a, a science problem. Yeah, the motivation theoretically was to make the dynamics look more like quasi-geostrophic dynamics, right. but being able to capture the changes in the stratification. That right. And what's your perception of how this has played out? Because even at the time, there was an argument that the stratification was controlled by moist convection, even in the extratropics. Yeah. And, and I remember that it was, like, it seemed like you kind of moved on to other things eventually, and so did other whoever else was involved in it, and never yeah. really... I mean, I, I was pretty convinced that it seemed there was at least some merit in some part of the world to both views. Yeah, I think there are several answers to that. I mean, first of all, in Princeton, I was mostly working on dynamics of a dry atmosphere without any moisture because I thought that's the problem you have to understand first Yes. before you add the moisture pieces. There's still convection in a dry atmosphere, so there's still a question of to what extent does convection matter. But these, these questions of to what degree does convection affect the stratification in the extratropics, you can address computationally, both in a dry and a moist case. Yes. I, uh, various types of experiments I did using simple convection schemes and yes. basically changing the importance, their dynamical importance, by changing the lapse rate to which convection relaxes stratification. So things like that you could do. And the outcome of that is that... Well, let's skip ahead a few years. I think the upshot of how much does moisture matter for the exotropics is this. It, it clearly matters regionally. Moist convection is important for stratification, say, over continents in mm -hmm. summer, over uh, yeah. some warm ocean regions in winter. But it's not that moist convection controls the stratification. The, the large-scale turbulence is still essential for it. Mm -hmm. I think I made some progress in understanding the dry case with scaling relations yeah. quantitative relations that tell you how the stratification relates to temperature gradients. Empirically, you can generalize them to moist atmosphere, and you can test this with simulations again. So I later on worked with Paul Gorman, for example, on that problem, and he showed how some mm -hmm. of these ideas can be generalized to moist cases. But it's true. Largely, people have moved on. I don't think all problems are resolved at all, and I still think it's an interesting question. Yeah. It's zero order important for controlling things like climate sensitivity, the lapse rate is just really important and mm -hmm. be nice to explain how it comes about. I still think it's an interesting question and I still think it's well worth doing research on it. We have all the tools now, you know, the simulations I could just barely do 20, 25 years ago. Now we can do them on a laptop and yeah. I think it's ripe for progress. Right. The whole area of the general circulation, I would say, um, I think my view in the early 2000s, I wrote a review paper on the general circulation, I think in 2004 or five, maybe came out in 2006. I remember writing in, in the introduction that I think these problems will be resolved in, in the near future. I don't know if I put the timeline there, but I did think we would make more progress on general circulation theory in the last 15 years or so than we have really made. I just wanted to follow up on a couple of things because it's around. You mentioned that you could do it, compute, look at the role of convection computationally by changing the lapse rate. And so, 
around this time, or maybe it was when you were already at Caltech, you started building, or maybe you already had started at Princeton, I can't remember, building the sort of intermediate complexity models with different forms of highly simplified truncation schemes. There was a sort of a dry one. And then right. Was, the dry one yeah. I had done in Princeton, I'd done the moist one, I think I started doing with Chris Walker, who was a postdoc. In so that was at Caltech already. At the same time, Dargan Frierson was doing very similar work and ended up, mm -hmm. um, yes. I think, publishing this, this moist idealized setup that, in essence, we were using for yes. a number of years thereafter. Right. And, those, yeah, those models ended up by using by, by you and by Dargan and lots of other yeah. people for a number of years. And, it, you know, it, it was something, it was a direction that I remember from the near earliest years that I had spent at GFDL. Isaac was talking about this as being something that should exist. Yeah. And then you guys did both. Both of you were his students, and yeah. both sort of did it. So yeah, it was related to the research questions of what sense the stratification, because yeah. those convection schemes were, you know, yeah. directly setting the stratification yeah. at one level, at least locally. You know, yeah. I mean, it's really a broad set of research questions here. What what controls where they're where where there are easterlies and westerlies, how strong they are, what controls precipitation patterns, right? It's yes. all related. And yes. we can address this whole complex of question with these types of models. Yes. And let's talk about the Hadley cell because my perception of it to this day is that you kind of came as part of the same overall set of research problems. You started writing papers emphasizing the role of extratropical eddies in the Hadley circulation, which at the time seemed quite radical. I mean, I think that's a case where your work actually did kind of transform the perception of the field on this. Yeah. So what, what Ed Schneider, Dick Linson, Isaac Held, Arthur Howe did is explore this limit of the atmosphere in which there are no eddies, there's no turbulence, and the circulation is entirely axisymmetric. And the papers are beautiful, right? I mean, it's, it's really that limit had to be explored and it yeah. had to be, we needed a quantitative theory for that and they delivered it. I think the theory became sort of gospel, I think in large part because the prediction for the extent of the Hadley cell that you get for the theory is about right. Yes. Somewhere 25 to 30 degrees, depending on how you choose parameters. Yes. <clears throat> the prediction for the strength isn't right from the theory. Right. Dick Lintz and Arthur Howe tried to account for that by looking at the seasonal cycle and its exosymmetric limit. Right. And I think what was clear to all of them certainly is that well a there are eddy heat fluxes so there's energy transport by eddies you can take that you can fold that into these existing theories fairly straightforwardly it's mm. just amounts to a modification of the thermal forcing for the Hadley cell i think that that plays a role at least all of them i'm sure was clear the part that's a bit more difficult to account for is what happens when there are strong eddy momentum fluxes mm -hmm. Because the theories fundamentally assume that the flow conserves angular momentum. And as soon as there is turbulent transport of angular momentum, that conservation isn't there anymore. And that becomes a fundamental problem for mm. the theory. The theory is still, of course, the correct theory for this axisymmetric limit, and it's still really important. But then if these eddy momentum fluxes are so important, then this may not, for example, account for the response of the Hadley circulation to climate change. And I think that's what Chris Walker and I were focusing on and pointing out that at least in these simulations and you can then compare with observations these eddy momentum fluxes are really fundamental not just in the subtropics at the edge of the Hadley cell but quite deep into the Hadley cell 
really fundamental, for example, in shaping the uh, seasonal cycle of the Huntley cell. Right. Do you feel that that would have got to the full conclusion that you wanted? What was so beautiful about the held out picture is that you had a close theory that accounts for everything you wanted to know about the Huntley circulation. And now here we have results saying, well, this is an important limit, but it's not quite the limit that's realized in Earth atmosphere. But mm -hmm. now what's the theory for the limit that's realized in Earth atmosphere? Yeah, I kept trying. One student in particular, Xavier Levine, who worked on this and actually made good progress. Fortunately, that, that paper is yet to be published. <laughs> I don't know whether it will be published. Right. But what you want is, is a theory sort of on the level of held how and just taking into, into account the momentum fluxes. And we still don't quite have that. I, still, I think right. that's still important to have. Do you, think, do you think the extent to which this sort of field as a whole values such theories has diminished? I mean, the field overall has grown, and it hasn't grown in that sort of geophysical fluid dynamics aspect. Right. But there are still people doing that type of work and valuing right. that type of work. And I think if you come up with a good shallow water model, say, that, that accounts for the momentum fluxes in a parameterized fashion that's consistent with simulations, I think people would value that. Yeah, we still have a big impact. The way I perceive it is... These questions, tell me if I get it right. I mean, my sort of memory of the chronology is that you were very, very focused on this set of, I mean, very broad set of questions, but about the mid-latitude circulation, the Hadley cell, the height of the tropopause, the stratification, which were all kind of connected. And then at some point, you started doing a lot of other things, like there was a moist convection, there was a planetary science, a lot of other things. I want to, yeah, maybe want to give you your in view of how those different things happened, when and by why. And well, in my mind, they were all connected. I mean, they, 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 I think well, so, so, so they may have all been connected, yeah. and I want to hear about how. But to to if you look at the field as a whole, for example, they were different communities of people that you're interacting with. That's true. So. I mean, A, the, the moist convection issues, that was just a logical next step. So here you work on a dry atmosphere. Now what happens once there is moisture and latent heat release is sort of a logical next step to take and mm -hmm. to trying to make progress on. The planetary parts, what I did with various students and postdocs to, to study the general circulation was always explore parameter space broadly in simulations. You know, look, yes. look at simulation with different planetary rotation rates and varying things widely and wildly. Yes. The work that, that Paulo Gorman did on um, on moist circulations, where we simulated circulations with global mean temperatures of 260 Kelvin to almost 320 Kelvin, really huge yeah. ranges, which allows you to expose the physics behind it clearly and cleanly. So the planetary work, I think, was much the same in my mind. It's just going to parts of parameter space outside our comfort zone to test your physical understanding of the system. I worked some on Titan at the time. A colleague Mike Brown had observed clouds on Titan at the South Pole at the time. There was a bit of a question, how do they come about? Now, Titan has a large Hartley circulation. It's basically an all-tropics planet. It's a Hartley circulation going from pole to pole. And um, you know, built a model to try to simulate this reasonably simply, but realistically enough that you can account for the observations, that the cloud observations especially, that Mike and uh, various other astronomers had made. That was, by the way, I think also an interesting lesson for what matters for me now in, in, in climate modeling. So I started out as one example for Titan using a cloud parameterization that at the time was pretty common in climate mm -hmm. models based on the relative humidity. And on Titan, that 
gives you completely wrong. What's the, wait, which one are we talking about? I mean, it's these types of cloud parameterizations where the cloud cover is a function, some sigmoidal function of relative humidity. Oh, I see. Cl- actual cloud fraction. Yeah. So if you use anything like that on Titan, you get clouds most places on the planet, and actually the observed cloud fraction is very small on Titan. Yeah. So it's an interesting lesson as you see it right away. This is not a physically correct way of closing the system. It just happens to work on Earth, but it's not respecting the physical principles it should respect. You know, relative humidity is not a concern of quantity and the like. So that was sort of a side thing that was interesting about it. And the giant planet, similarly, I think there you have planets that don't have any solid surface at all. And yet there are angular momentum fluxes you can observe, same eddy fluxes of angular momentum we just talked about. Yes. You can observe them in cloud, uh, in cloud motions. And you, know, you worked on the stratosphere, so you know when there are momentum fluxes, there is downward control. There have to be circulations yeah. extending to great depth. Yeah. And so that was just the work on a giant planet. Most of it together with Jun Ron Liu was an attempt to piece together a physically consistent picture of how the circulations on these planets work. A picture that's physically consistent, but is also consistent with the observations that we had at the time. And it was great fun to do because you had to put the entire planet somewhere together in your, in your head and then build simulations that show this is actually how it could work. I feel like we should talk about Caltech a little bit because the situation is kind of interesting and I want you to tell me if I have the history right. So you were hired at Caltech as you know, a young scientist uh, you know, with the trajectory you just described. You were at NYU and you got hired from there as, a, as an assistant professor, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And it's a small, you know, obviously very storied and famous institution, but a small place and a place that You've mentioned some of the people who were there. It wasn't a large group doing atmosphere or climate. I mean, I guess Paul Wenberg was there doing chemistry. Yuck, I was there doing radiation. Ingersoll was basically doing planetary science. I mean, some projection on Earth, but mostly yeah. planetary. Is it true? This is a story I've heard a couple of times. And why tell me it was true that until they hired you, they didn't have anybody in dynamics. First of all, that I'm pretty sure is, is yeah. true if you don't count Andy, yeah. who let's call him a planetary scientist. They didn't have anybody studying Earth's atmosphere. And the story I heard about that was that there was this charlatan back in like the 40s who made bullshit weather forecasts a year in advance. And the only way they could get rid of him was to like close the program and had to wait till that guy died. Is that all true? So it is true that there was someone making forecasts way beyond any time you can meaningfully forecast anything. He claimed to have made the predictions for D-Day and then was uh, selling the predictions to the movie industry. for Right, so it was that long ago. So I mean, that part 40s, is yeah. 40s, 50s, so that part is true. It's also true that he was somehow made to leave. I think they closed that part. Now, I, I, I was told the story that that's the reason I couldn't hire anyone. Uh-huh. I, I, I'm, I, I'm not quite quite sure how exactly true that is but, but I mean, there it is sounds some, like a plausible story there's some logic to it because you know if the only way you can fire somebody is to close the department you can't reopen it tomorrow right, right? You have to. right. anyway it's a good story and the truth value i'm, I'm not totally sure but there, it has some some elements for sure are true right and and um at some point you got married and had children when did that happen yeah that was 2010 thereabouts yeah, so your kids are, I don't know, 10 years younger ten than and, mine or something. Yeah. yeah, 10 and 12 now. 10 and 12. Do we want to talk about them? Do we want to talk about family things at all? No. We can. I mean, the children are wonderful. I mean, yeah. yeah. My wife is at Caltech as well. Wife is another big shot scientist? She's a mechanical engineer. Yeah, she uh, she wanted to be a physicist, actually, but um, 
I think there was a strong directive from the parents uh, do something useful. So she became really? a mechanical engineer. Okay. Yeah. I'm trying to think of what else I'm missing before we get up to the latest phase. The voice convection, the planetary. Yeah. I think sometime around, you know, children and the like, I started thinking that I should spend at least some, if not most of my time on the problems that we as a field most need to solve. Um, and yeah. as a field, I think, need to... And you didn't think those were the same ones you were already doing? No. I mean, it was clear that what I was doing it was, you know, in some ways, is what should go into the textbook on the climate system one day. And that's how, mm-hmm. at least, I thought about it. Um, you just like to have, yeah, a textbook with your things you can explain on the board. This is how the Hadley Silver works. This is how winds yeah. come out. And this is how rainfall is distributed. And that's how I thought of what I was doing then. But it's clear that... It was explaining what models do. It wasn't making models better. Yeah. And you felt that the main challenge for the field is to make the models better. It's definitely one challenge. It doesn't, not everyone has to do that. But as a field, we have to do this. Yeah. And so that's when the low clouds and stuff started? Yeah, I started thinking about clouds broadly. I mean, it's the biggest uncertainty in climate predictions. And I mean, here's a general thought perhaps of what makes a good problem to work on right? to me it has to be something that's relevant in some fashion mm-hmm. um i mean i would say the planetary work for example had relevance because i knew there was there were planetary emissions coming up where some of the things i was working on would become testable mm-hmm. and that was a large motivation mm-hmm. for me a good problem should be one that you can solve now because there are new tools new ideas new data in some fashion mm-hmm. and i should find it interesting that's pretty subjective but Clouds, turbulence, I mean, the small scale turbulence is still geophysical fluid dynamics. And it's clear that the computational tools had advanced to the point that you could study clouds in much the same way we have studied the general circulation with uh, large eddy simulations. I felt there was, there was a large opportunity, and it's clearly still interesting fluid dynamics. And I yeah. decided to I mean, spend I guess some should, time on it. I mean, since we've sort of said this implicitly, but haven't said it at in you know, so many words that the models, well, I, I'm not sure about the planetary work, but all the other stuff, the models you had been using had explicitly avoided having clouds in them. I mean, right. sort of like almost everything right. but that, that was the one thing right. not to put in there. Yeah. And so at some point you said it was having children. I mean, what, what, what do you think led to, I'm interested in people's personal evolution. So like, what do you think led you to, to think, okay, now it's time to do something different it didn't have to, to do with children directly. I think there was more... Actually, you know, I think that one thing that mattered is you had a Packard Fellowship too, and yes. I always enjoyed these Packard meetings. Yeah. And tried to go as often as I could to the annual meetings and the reunions. And, yeah. And there were just... It's just a broad cross-section of the brightest people across the sciences and engineering doing all sorts of interesting work. Yes. And... I remember hearing talks by people working on infectious diseases, for example, and yes. uh, diagnosing infectious diseases and feeling, wow, this is really saving lives on a massive scale, what they're doing. This is yeah, it's hard to compete fantastic. with that. It's hard to compete with it, but it did trigger the question, so what what can I do with my skill set to right. more directly improve the human condition in some fashion or another? Right. But I mean, I guess what I meant about having children was not so much with the children themselves. But at this point, maybe the more relevant thing is, you know, maybe you were never worried about your own career survival, but at this point, you certainly didn't have to, right? You have tenure at this point. Yeah. And so on. Yeah. yeah for some I people, know. I mean, for those, that's a big thing. I mean, when yeah. you're trying to 
you know, the, the, the advice to young faculty is to, you know, do one thing and be really good at that. So, I mean, you, you probably maybe you never had this concern, but. No, I mean, I've, I was pretty blissfully ignorant about how all of this works until very late as a result of which I was never too worried about it. Yeah, but you can be blissfully ignorant because you kind of know you're doing fine and people must have told you you're doing fine. Yeah, sure. Although that's true for many people who still worry. True. Yes, you may constitutionally not be a worrier. That's true. Yeah, I mean, I didn't worry that much either, but I do think there's something about, you know, you get to a certain point and it's like, okay, I'm fine now. You know, now what's my job? You know what I mean? It's like, I, I certainly had that. Yeah. You know, to different degrees at different times. Yeah. yeah it wasn't so much that as you know, there were various workshops on model development that I attended, some organized by Jatishera, who became my guide into this field early mm-hmm. on. And, and there were, the workshops were often pretty depressing and that they were mostly older people, mostly older men doing this parentization work for representing clouds and climate models and feeling they're not getting the recognition they want to get and they're not getting <laughs> influx of new talent um, into this area. And I realized yes. that, look, as a field, we'll have to do better here. And at universities, we have great freedom to choose to do what we want to do. And I felt I should choose that freedom and contribute right. there. I mean, some people would say, well, you have to fund it. I mean, obviously, you've been able to do that, but, but you know, it's not total yeah. freedom. Yeah. It's, it's still a large amount of freedom. I mean, the yeah. funding, especially is over a small research group, right. our field is still pretty good. But, I mean, I think part of the issue, and I've seen this in, in uh, I know better the world of, of convective parameterization, which an odd thing of our field is that that's somewhat distinct from cloud parameterization. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, I don't view it as distinct, but yeah. No, but, it, it, but historically yeah. it is, though, yeah. right? There are different chunks of code in the model yes. and done by different people. Yes. And um, it's, I think it's seen as especially unglamorous now. I mean, student people don't really want to do it. But even then, you know, I mean, somehow... I'm kind of interested in the thing of the old guys trying to get, (laughs) not getting the right. What do you think was the dynamic there? I mean, it wasn't, it was clearly an important problem. It wasn't drawing tons of people. The problem of parameterization specifically, you know, representing the process in the model, in the models. I think there were two issues. One is that almost all of that work happened in, in centers or government type centers. And it wasn't well connected to the training of the next generation. Right. And I think a second problem I feel was that often it was quite divorced from fundamental science, fundamental understanding of these systems. It, it right. became a bit of an, I mean, often there's some sort of engineering exercise to tweak something and see if it makes things better. Mm-hmm. And if you think back to say, Suki Manabi or Kiyo Kava who came up with the first parameterizations you're using, yeah. people wouldn't call them model developers. They were first and foremost outstanding scientists, and there was yes. a clear connection to the fundamentals there. And so I felt that's two things that can be changed and can be done better, just put, put this work on, on a more rigorous scientific footing and connect it to the next generation of scientists. And I would say, actually, many of 
the younger generation love working in this area just because yeah. they know it's impactful. They see that see right. it matters. Right. I mean, but the thing of it getting happening in centers and becoming more technical and not having the sort of, um, you know, first principles, you know, purity isn't the right word, but not having that individual investigator passion quality that Manabi and the other early, you know, pioneers brought to it. Yeah. I mean, maybe it wasn't inevitable, but I mean, don't you think it's to some degree just a consequence of the models getting bigger and better and more powerful and more complicated that no one person can get their hands around it or even maybe no 10 people you know, can get their hands around the whole thing anymore so easily and so it it kind of that's the direction it goes it's sort of the path of least resistance for it to go is to be and taking a lot takes a lot of resources to maintain them which makes it hard to do in universities i know you've yeah. got a unique solution to all these things now which we'll get to but i mean yeah well i think it's i think this complexity is not irreducible i think it's just historical sedimentation of layers of complexity up a layer of complexity that people right. hadn't troubled to peel back in a while i mean just what you're saying that convection parentization is viewed separate from cloud parentization is viewed separate from shallow convection parentization is viewed separate from microphysics yes. that that's already pretty indicative of of the state of the field there are these things in, in reality there are no spectral gaps in nature right. they're all lying on a continuous spectrum connected and if we treat them in separate communities by separate people, it's clearly a hindrance to progress. Yeah. Okay. So, so as a way of working up to the current, your current uh, stuff, I mean, do you want to trace a little bit the trajectory through the cloud problem, how you started? And I mean, I started small. I was still doing large-scale dynamics work and started working with Zhao Teixeira and then a student, Jehong Tan, he did mm -hmm. a thesis on... Eddie um, diffusivity mass flux closures that Zhao, Pierce Wisma, and a few others at ECMWF had developed a few years earlier. We started working in that framework, thinking this is a good way to unify all these things that are disparate in, in models currently. And, and we're trying to get at questions of you know, strength of cloud feedbacks and the like, doing large eddy simulations, high resolution simulations of clouds and convection in limited areas to validate what we we're doing and yeah it started small but it grew over time and the, i mean so this what how what was your definition of what was the problem you were trying to solve i mean to unify the i remember there was the um diffusion and uh mass flux pieces mass yeah. Flux, yeah i mean i think the there were two there still are i think two two goals one goal is just the pragmatic one have have just a great climate model that ideally reduces sure. these uncertainties coming from cloud feedbacks by well, a factor of several, ideally. And so that's one goal. It's really the mm -hmm. have something that you can put in a complex model that's, that's empirically much better than what we have. And the second goal uh, is to, like with the general circulation theories, to have quantitative, maybe call it theories or simplified models, that explain cloud feedbacks where likewise we have very little to mm. almost nothing. I mean, we, we, we have statements about if A increases, then B increases or decreases and the like, but a quantitative theory connecting them, especially for low clouds is missing. And I think these are still the two goals and that body of work for me. Okay. And so maybe this is the right moment. I mean, I know there's a number of years here 
I don't want to like race through them too quickly, but like, do you want to go through the trajectory? I mean, so there's a clear logical progression that even any outsider can see from this to what you're doing now with the uh, Klima model and, and center, but do you want to trace this, whatever other steps are essential to see how yeah. that happened? How did it come about? So I, I started working on, on these smaller scale processes just with you know, still a small research group funded by NSF grants, the usual. I was in Switzerland for a few years in between, had some funding there, the same, same, same direction. Um, I feel like and, maybe we should talk about Switzerland. For okay. <laughs> yeah. well, let's come back to, to it. So, yeah. I think then, again, there was this, this clear sense that we as a field, the, the fundamental deliverable of the field should be good climate predictions that people can use to adapt to the climate changes that are coming to mitigate what's unavoidable and the like. Yeah. And I started um, organizing a series of workshops at Caltech, and some funding from Charlie Trimble at the time, um, on the future of Earth system modeling, and just invited people. And this is how many years into the low-cloud problem, would you say? So, I think I started working on the low clouds, perhaps, or clouds broadly, clouds convection, maybe it's 2011 or so. And then there's oh, that far Swiss. back. Okay. Yeah, I mean, Zhihong started around then, I believe, maybe okay. 2012. Okay. It's just one student at a time. Yeah. And then, so now we are in 2017, in between really Swiss okay. years we can, we can talk about. Okay. So... I returned to Caltech in 2016, 2000, and then... Right, think, just in time for Trump, as I remember that. I was like, yeah, welcome back, Tapio. Yeah, I know Chiara was saying, <laughs> could, could, could Trump be elected? Is this no way, this can't happen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so then we started this series of workshops on the future of Earth system modeling, invited just the leading people and yeah. modeling centers and on various topics, on dynamical cores, on prioritizations, on polar yeah. climates, on, on the biosphere. I think I made it to one of these. Yeah. And they ended up being a lot of fun, very interesting. Yeah. I like this format. You know, each time was like 30 some people perhaps. So it was yeah. fairly small. So you could interact intensely with everyone. And yeah. we were just trying to ask the question. So suppose you don't have to deal with these layers upon layers of history on climate models. Uh, would you go about building a climate model now right. if you could? And it was really meant as a hypothetical at the time. There wasn't any plan to build a climate model. Mm. Not um, even in your mind? I think what was in my mind is build good prioritizations and find a way to include them in an atmosphere model, mm -hmm. which in itself is not easy because, again, as you said, there, there are just these disparate communities with disparate parentizations and right. it's not so easy to replace four or five, six parentizations in a climate model. It's not even easy to replace time. one. Any model developer will tell you because you've got to plug into 19 different things and it's going to change there's a technical, Yeah, I mean, there's a technical aspect. There's also a social aspect to it. And yeah. It, kind of exponentiate yeah. <laughs> for several of them. And, but anyway, that, that was the idea. I, I did think it would be good to work with a group of people to try to do something a bit more radical than, uh -huh. Uh -huh. than just, um, just tweaks. 
And I mean, at the same time, it was clear there is an enormous opportunity in using data more extensively, both computationally generated data, large data simulations of the type you were already running, and observational data. Climate models are evaluated against observational data. There are hand-tuned against a very small set of observational data uh-huh. of the atmosphere energy balances and the like. But there are, there are you know, we receive 50 terabytes of Earth observations per day. It's just really only yes. a tiny fraction of it that we use in climate modeling directly. Mm-hmm. So the idea was there that somewhere at the nexus of computing, using data, but also advancing theory, somewhere in that nexus lies progress and wanted to do something about it. So we had this series of workshops with people coming through and discussing in various areas what would be interesting to do. And out of that series of workshops, grew a group of people. Raf Ferrari is, is an old friend with MIT, mm-hmm. known each other since grad school. Oh, really? And, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Did he come? Wait, where did he? He was at Scripps. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Andrew Stewart at Caltech is a colleague in computational applied mathematics who, uh-huh. whom I met on my return to Caltech. He had started at Caltech just at that time. And so together we thought, well, maybe we can try to, to make progress here and using data more extensively, driving theory forward and using computing more extensively. So, so just, I, and I not to interrupt, but just so that when you say that, saying all this stuff, I mean, was the driver already at this time the recognition of the emergence of all the machine learning stuff that was starting to happen? Or could the, could the growth in the amount of data available was not a new thing at this point? I mean, it kept been happening. Yeah. I mean, sure, machine learning played a role, but it was, I think, clear to all of us from the outset that just using off-the-shelf machine learning tools is at least not the approach we wanted to pursue. And we thought it was not likely to be the most successful for several reasons. I mean, one is that in climate, you need to predict something for which we do not have data. So you need to have generalizability out of the distribution and standard deep learning tools have difficulties with that. I mean, there there are ways of dealing with it, but it's it's challenging. You need um, models that in the end you can interpret. You need to be able to tell a story of what the model does that's reasonably transparent because otherwise people won't believe what comes out right and again standard deep learning approaches are notoriously hard to interpret and and on a very pragmatic level uncertainty quantification to us was very important from the outset and yes i mean that all makes sense but i'm just asking if you have any further ref- recollection or reflection on what the source of the idea of putting more data in because that was not a really an old idea at that point i mean the, that was a new i mean that was not what people would say about how to make models better. They would say, you know, it was yeah. higher resolution, figuring out how to do parameterization better. Just that putting data into the models was not, even in your work, you know, was not some people were doing data simulation, of course, always. Yeah. But it, well, there I was think something that the new question, there. I think the reason it hadn't come up all that much is pretty primarily technical because it's a hard problem. Um, if you, so what happened at the time? So Andrew and I and a few others got together and tried to think through what it means to put data in a model and try to build toy models and Mm -hmm. how do you do this? And the approach on which we quickly converged, and that was mostly thanks to Andrew, was saying that what matters for climate are statistics of the climate system, time aggregates. 
that's what you want to predict well, and that's what we have data for. And we quickly converged on the idea we want to learn from those climate statistics, so not from short-term weather forecasts, which was an pr- approach people had tried. So mm-hmm. not, not try to minimize errors in a 24-hour forecast and hope that makes your climate model better, mm-hmm. but rather focus on things like cloud cover statistics, precipitation statistics, and the like, and learn from those. Now, as soon as you decide to do that, the challenge is that you cannot use standard, say, supervised learning approaches um, yeah. for training models. And you are in the world of Bayesian learning, effectively, which is computationally extremely expensive. So typical algorithms, you know, Markov Chain, Monte Carlo, you need 10 to the 5, 10 to the 6 forward model evaluations to do this. And so we thought of ways, and again, mostly thanks to Andrew, on how to do this in a climate modeling setting using ensemble methods, common inversion and variance. Mm-hmm. And so there was 2000. Right after I came back, 16, early 17, so we wrote a bit of an overview paper on how it might be done. I'd been invited to write a longer paper for GRL for one of their, um, I don't know, I forget what it's called, some long overview paper on something. Mm-hmm. And that became that paper where we laid out um, how you could learn from the climate data that matter that we have available in the context right. of the climate model and do it in a way that becomes computationally feasible. And this was already, I think I remember this paper, or at least the talk you gave about it, which was not, this is not that long ago anymore. It was 2017. And so, I mean, it seemed like at this point, I remember hearing you give a talk about this, and I don't think... It, it seemed obvious to me that you were aiming at put together, putting together some kind of large project. I don't know if I had talked to you about it or if, I heard, or if you said that, but it was like, oh, okay, he must be good about to do something big because this sounded like a very large vision that, that uh, I'm, trying to, I'm yeah. trying to connect this scientific work to the ambition to, to actually do it, you know, execute it. Right. Now, I don't, I don't know what exactly I thought about. I mean, one thing I, I know for sure is I didn't think we should build an all-new climate model, all-new code from scratch at the time that, mm-hmm. that evolved over time. I did think that this requires a more radical departure, surely a, a larger chunk of funding than, than usual. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think at least the initial thoughts were still more incremental than what we're actually doing now. Okay, so before we get to that, I just want to take a step back because we only briefly mentioned this, but it's just occurring to me as you're talking about the deep learning and everything that maybe we should just say a word about your relationship to statistics because like early on, you wrote a couple of papers about statistical methods that, you know, it's not my, I never, I don't probably never even read them myself, but I knew you were doing this. and. And I knew people who were in totally different areas of research than you, but who know these papers. I mean, they were highly influential at the time. And what I remember is that this never really interested you. Like you sort of, I remember you telling me something like a long time ago, like, oh yeah, it's just all one big, one big linear algebra problem, algebra problem, whatever, you can do that, but it's not really like, it's fine, but I'm not really going to do this. But it must have been helpful, right? When you got back to this point um, to yeah. have that as a, you know, most, most people trained in geophysical fluid dynamics, certainly me, don't have that skill set. Yeah, there's a bit of a deeper history here. And that, and that is, while I was in Germany, I, um, I 
I had a job first in the applied math department um, and then in the biophysics group where I worked for probably two years, maybe longer. So this is at, at a young age. Yeah, I was you know, 19, 20, 21 then. And so in that biophysics group, it was they were doing brain recordings of various animals and i i you know wrote a lot of say software for for the lab and that was the time of sort of the first wave of neural networks uh-huh. like propagation wasn't all that old at the time so i was surrounded by it worked some with with neural networks okay. at that time on you know what counted for workstations at the time, you know, microvaxes and the like. Mm-hmm. And I learned a lot of statistics in the process. So all the things we do in our field, principal component analysis, I, I was doing at the time. Mm-hmm. I was familiar with okay. it. And um, so I always, I mean, I, I, I always liked it. It is, it is a linear algebra problem in the end. <laughs> so it comes down to knowing about matrix factorizations and the like. Then at Caltech, I... Um, started teaching a class on what we call data analysis for you, but I've called it machine learning now because what we cover was sort of basic machine learning things that you find machine learning classes now that was together with Emmanuel Candes. Um, so we taught this class for a while until I left for Switzerland. So I've been teaching those things for many years and what for Caltech standards was a relatively large class. Yeah. So it was always close. Um, I think the, the papers I wrote, I mean, they had very concrete problems that I wanted to solve. Actually, they, 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 the impetus for those papers was a statement in the IPCC report from 1995, I believe, that the balance of evidence suggests there's a discernible human influence on climate. Mm-hmm. And it was such a weak statement, and there was no figure in the report that showed you know, this is the human influence on climate as a map or something. Mm-hmm. And, so it started with saying, if it, there's a discernible influence, I want to see it. So there were problems then to solve, to deal with missing data. That became one paper and the problem with mm-hmm. filtering and space and time to filter out the human signal. That was another paper. And this and is all, or this is when you were young. I was a, that's, that's when I was a grad student in Princeton, but they, right. these were kind of side projects. Yeah, um, yeah so I, I mean, I think with the methods I was reasonably familiar with, but I think I... The method development as such wasn't what I wanted to work on. And mm-hmm. I think what I was always looking for is a meaningful problem, right? And that's that's what this is, working in climate modeling. I mean, now, now this is exciting to work on because you can make progress on, on a hard problem that really matters. So let's now get to Klima. So you have to tell the story of that from the, from the, you know, from the beginning of where it was actually an idea or as close to that as you want to get. I mean, the idea of using data and computing more extensively to inform climate models was before we started these workshops. And we had these workshops. And I think what gradually crystallized was a sense that there is space for trying something new, a bit more radically new than, say, improving an existing model, leaving it as it is. at the time, there were various foundations looking to do something in climate and um, various proposals, larger proposals for high-resolution simulations by, by others were, were floating. 
And so there was a clear sense that there was interest in funding a climate modeling effort. Um, and we were very fortunate to receive funding from primarily Eric and Wendy Schmidt eventually. And there was some funding from Paul Allen Philanthropies. We had we wrote an NSF proposal for one of these cyber infrastructure grants, a five-year grant that mm -hmm. we also um, won with a lot of support from the program manager there, Eric De Weaver especially. Mm -hmm. So that was summer 2018, towards fall 2018. <clears throat> Suddenly a lot of funding place, pieces fall in, fell into place and we could actually do something and, and build. It still wasn't right away an all new climate model. And the proposals that we had written, we wanted to, for example, use existing dynamical cores and mm -hmm. add to them. <clears throat> what emerged over time was that there may be an opportunity in, an, in a complete rewrite, also because there was an opportunity to just redesign the software structure, make it more user-friendly, easier to use for students and the like. And so what came out of it was, was an all-new, everything-new climate model. That wasn't necessary for what we wanted to do scientifically. I mean, we, we could we could have used an existing dynamical core, for example. It would have been just fine. There's mm -hmm. there's little scientific upside in rewriting a dynamical core, <clears throat> but having all new software in itself is an opportunity in in training the next generation who wants to work with new modern software <clears throat> and building the model from the outset to be performance portable, that it runs on CPUs, GPUs, and the like. Mm -hmm. That was one principal computational opportunity we could capitalize on. And, and still, again, the proposal, we talked about using existing land models. Then we had some people starting to think about land modeling at JPL, Christian Frankenberg at, at Caltech. And they got excited about an all-new land model, in part because there was also the sense of too many layers of history sedimented in the existing models. Um, people like Gordon Bonin were advocating for somewhat simpler models, land models, and so that also became a new model. So over time, it emerged that all pieces were new code, not always new concepts. I mean, the dynamical core we have is not conceptually fundamentally different from CAM or E3SM. Um, and, and of course, wherever we can, we borrow concepts that have stood the test of time and work. But where there were opportunities to improve, we, we could take those opportunities and we're not tied to the history. And, but still, to do all that within a university required kind of structure and staff that is normally difficult. I mean, I mean, it's 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 a, it's a bit of a double-edged situation, right? There is what you have at the university is just students in general, a young generation of scientists who rightfully think that this is the defining challenge of scientific challenge of their generation. Want to work in this area? Extremely talented, extremely bright people from all areas of science and engineering, computer science, our, our scientific fields and the like, they want to contribute and they bring an enormous amount of creativity and energy to this. Mm -hmm. Of course, the downside is you don't have the sort of long-term stable structures 
project management structures and all these things that you usually have at, at yes. the climate modeling lab. And so that's the balance we have to we have to walk. Um, I think the the advantages prevail that that the in training and training the next generation of scientists in the end I think makes up for the obvious uh, challenges this brings. You know, our funding is for the most part um, year to year. It's it's. It's not GFDL or DOE, and, and yeah. our funding level is large for a university project, but it's in the single-digit percent level of other climate modeling centers. Right. I mean, but also, I mean, from the outside, I mean, I, I mean, having come visited your group once before the pandemic, I mean, it it um, it looks like you're running a startup within the university. I mean, you have a building with a bunch of people all trying to do a thing, you know, with a budget and a timeline and and so on. It's very coherent. You know, you know, a, a, a kind of, um, I mean, you clearly have students and postdocs with research projects that are relevant to their educations and their careers, but you also have, um, you know, a kind of coordination that you need to make a large project go. So you must get the question, like, why did you do it that way? Why did you do it? You know, you could have made a company to do it. Too. When we started, the question didn't really come up. At the time, I, I felt I had to explain to people that there were, is eventually a commercial opportunity in climate information. I mean, that has completely changed, obviously. Now now there are a lot of people coming, why don't you start a company? Um, well, that's an interesting question. The Again, you, you, you want to get the climate model right in the first place and for it to be a, a good model. And that just takes some time and perhaps longer time than you would have in, in, in an actual startup. Many people have compared our atmosphere with a startup atmosphere, and I think it has that energy, and that's all good. Um, yeah. But the other part of about commercialization that's interesting is, I mean, I, I do think climate information should be a public good, and good. that's yeah. that's. Uh, I think this is an interesting question for us to figure out at some point, right? If If you want to make something long-term sustainable, it cannot be done either within a government structure with stable funding or with a revenue stream. You cannot long-term rely on philanthropic funding. Right. Um, and and yet, ours, what makes the project so exciting, I think, in part, is that it's very much a research project with a very practical outcome yeah. coming out of fundamental research. And... Um, well, I think there's a balance we'll have to find, and at some point we'll have to figure out how to how to make this more longer term sustainable. Yeah. And so, what do you? I mean, so the goal is to produce the model, and then what's the vision of how it's used? I mean, go from the IPCC reports. You know, what are the different? Yeah, I think the IPCC report, or or more broadly, the CMIP, the model into comparison project. Mm -hmm is great because it opens the models to scrutiny, to public scrutiny, opens the output to public scrutiny. So I think it should be a goal to participate in that eventually, mm -hmm. just because it you have just a lot more eyes on, on the model and a clear comparison with other models of what's mm -hmm. good and what's not so good. So I think that will be good to do at some point, who knows when the next CMAP cycle will really run. Um, 
we want we want the model output to be directly used, right? I mean, the what has completely changed from four or five years ago to now is that now there is an emerging industry for climate analytics, climate information, and the like, yes. however you want to call it. People estimate this to be a forty billion dollars a year market that just didn't exist a few years ago, and and yet that entire industry or emerging industry is is using existing climate models as the back end, in the best yeah. of cases, with all their shortcomings. Yeah, um, we know that they're not really fit to purpose for a zip code level climate projections and the like. Right. And so the hope would be that we get the climate model that's substantially better than state of the art and can eventually form a back end for informing right. more user-facing climate information products. Right. But I mean, don't you think that the zip code level is sort of a silly idea anyway? I mean, there's no certain, there's not going to be any meaning. I mean, you, zip code level is, is, is an unreasonable ask, right? I mean, unless you're living on a hill and, you know, the person 100 meters away is, you know, right. lower elevation, there's not really any climate. There's probably no predictability at the zip code level. Well, again, it depends on the question, right? So for flood forecasting, flood yes. risk mapping, it's based on elevation. Yes, so there, there evidently is information at, at that level. Um, but, but the bigger problem is that even on the thousand kilometer scales, we don't have the accurate, actionable information you need. And so, before you even get to the zip code level, you know, the, the global mean temperature already, the spread is, is very large for the next uh, few decades. So already re reducing the uncertainties and those predictions, the model based uncertainties, there's going to be some uncertainty from the chaotic internal variability that will be irreducible. But reducing the model uncertainties already on the large scales, I think will be a big step forward. And then you can think through how that percolates through to smaller scales and, and where you can meaningfully give small scale information, say for floods, whereas say for temperature extremes or naturally fairly large in scale, amplified perhaps for urban heat island effects, but, but the basics, the basic phenomena, the hazards giving rise to temperature extremes are fairly large scale. But apart from biases, I mean, bias, model bias is an obvious problem. And I'm sure you're thinking a lot about how to, you know, how to reduce yeah. them. It's in some sense, it's got to be a central objective of the yeah. whole thing. But how, in, when you, in terms of reduced uncertainty and projections, how will one ever know? I, I mean, let's start with getting the present climate right, right? I sure. mean, biases you see in the present climate. I mean, look at you know, Arctic sea ice. There is uh, factor two variations and sea ice cover across models. Right. Or when you look at projections, when will the Arctic be ice-free in summer? Um, around half, maybe slightly more than half of the variation from model to model is traceable to present day biases. So mm. Basically a model that has more sea ice now will obviously have sea ice for longer than a model that has mm -hmm. less sea ice to begin with. Mm -hmm. So let's just first get the present climate as right as we can. And things like the seasonal cycle is pretty underexplored as, as, as a metric to improve climate models, um, precipitation extremes. And now, I guess your question is, suppose you can do a great job on the present climate. Right. How will you know that the predictions are better? Um, yeah, yeah, there will not be a guarantee. I mean, in a way, you could 
fit the model with 2 billion parameters and fit everything you can, or most things you care about observing right now, and mm -hmm. it may not have any predictive power because it doesn't generalize. I think this is, again, the basis of basics of how science works. You build models that are as sparsely parameterized as you can make them. Yeah. And that will give you some confidence in, in the future predictions being right. For some key processes, we can directly test it. Say clouds, the largest driver of uncertainties in climate predictions. We can directly test the climate response of clouds, at least the dynamical response not the microphysical parts, in large eddy simulations. And that's one way of validating what mm -hmm. the climate model does. Yeah, and what do you see the role of resolution versus everything else? I mean, in other words, how much by increasing resolution versus physics, you know, yeah. versus numerics versus... I think, I mean, you want to use the largest resolution you can get, right? But what what does that mean? I think... I think uncertainty quantification is important. You need to be able to run ensembles. Yeah. I think it's important to be able to understand what a model does, which likewise will require ensembles, perturbed perturbations in various aspects. So you, I think, want to use the largest resolution that you can get that still allows you to create ensembles of predictions. Um, for what we do is we want to learn from data that in itself requires ensembles of simulations. So ensembles of size, typically 100 or so. Yeah. So I think that's a constraint. So you'll use whatever resolution allows you to run ensembles of around size 100 or so, ideally more if you can. That probably gets you to tens of kilometer scale, yeah. not kilometer scale. Yeah. Um, if you can get to higher resolution, great. Of course, it's important to keep in mind that the big uncertainties dynamically lie on scales of tens of meters or so, low clouds, for example. Microphysics, it's micrometer. So resolution alone is not going to resolve the problems. And what about multi-model diversity? I mean, if having one great model, you know, that's obviously all you can do, you know, that's right. hard enough as a, you know. Right. But do you think that's essential? A lot of people think multi-model ensembles are essential, but on the other hand, if you really had a perfect model, it would be perfect. But if you can get many good models, that's great, right? Um, of course, what we do is so we learn parameters in the models, we learn structural error models in the model, and what you get as, in the end, is not really one model, but in itself is an ensemble of models drawn from a posterior of plausible models mm -hmm. given the data. So we will have um, already some ensemble of model. Right. So of course, it's still within the structure of that one model we have, right. although we are working on right. also building in models for structural errors Yeah. To explore that. Um, so it's not just one model in the traditional sense, but it's also not right. what you're thinking about fundamentally different uh, model structures. Right. And do you, have, do you have a lot of... I remember that you were a year or two ago this was before the pandemic, and I'm sure it got disrupted somewhat. But I mean, do you have a lot of interaction with the user base or potential user base, or is it still kind of too early for that? Yeah, we're. we're I think it's interesting how that has changed. I think the the interest in the potential user base has outrun what we as a climate modeling community broadly can deliver and also for us as Klima individually. Mm -hmm. We are working with a building technology company on producing, say, the types of uh, typical meteorological years that they would need for 
for um, building energy simulations and, and some such things. And there's a lot of interest from other users. I think our engagement with those types of with end users will increase in, in the next year or so. But yeah. right now, we just need to get this model. To yeah, I mean, it takes a lot of energy to do it. And yeah. so you, you know, you guys have yeah. a big job you're trying to do already. Yeah. yeah Issue. I mean, do you have any other reflections on how it's going? I mean, you have a team of young scientists, and yeah, and... I think it's 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 a fantastic group of people. It's really really fun to work together with people, yeah. even though, of course, it can be stressful. That's true. Their budgets, timelines, all those things. But I think it does feel like the most meaningful thing scientifically that I've been involved in. Uh -huh. Do you, but do you not feel that there's some tension between the imperatives of, of a, a group project that has a single objective, or maybe multiple objectives, but it's one single core objective, and the sort of needs of um, the individual, you know, yeah. young scientist careers? I mean, I feel that with a much yeah. less ambitious, you know, project than yours, but. Yeah, I mean, that, there there is a tension. There's no question, right? I mean, in academia, our success metric is papers written, and yes. that's not necessarily the most relevant metric if you want to build a better climate model. Right. Um, of course, we write papers. Of course, there's a lot of new science, and what, what makes the project fun and interesting to me is that it is really tightly coupled new science, new math, yeah. and a new model. But there remains there remains a a tension. Um, you know, I think the fundamental tension is that this is a team project. It succeeds to the degree that we work well together as a team. Yes. And standard academic incentives are not not standard fostering is, that very well. Right. Standard so, academic incentives are for the individuals to differentiate themselves. Right. So your know, first author counts more than others. And yes. in reality, you work together as a team. So yes. you know, we sometimes quit. We just have to write lots of papers and we can take turns being first. But yes. that only works to, to some degree. Yeah. And I think that's a broader issue for the sciences and academia that I see a lot of people want to work in teams and want to work on meaningful projects together. Yes. And yet academic institutions are not rewarding that type of work very well. Right. And maybe can we talk a little bit about like your perception of how do I want to put this? Just the politics of global warming and how this plays into it. Right. In other words, the the use as you know, I'm kind of obsessed by this issue of of how our science is used, and um, so clearly we want to have the best science. We want to have the best models and the best projections for lots of reasons. As you know, I felt some frustration that um, you know the way that information is used in the actual world with all its ugly politics and everything is not um, necessarily uh, responsive to the scientific information in the way that we might dream it could be. And I know you've thought about these things, issues a lot and even had some engagement with elected officials and so on. 
and, and many other, you know, you know a lot of people in high places and, and the work you're doing has got a huge amount of attention and, you know, people are excited about it. So how do you think about this problem, you know, of how this stuff's going to be used or not used and what the, or is it just keep your head down and make the best climate model because you know we need it or is there any other... Um, I mean, for me, concretely, it is, it is, you know, build the best climate model and the primary users will be, well, the private sector and the public sector on, say, municipal level, mm-hmm. local level, right? A small town planner needs climate information to decide on rainwater management infrastructure. Those I see as, as the primary users that will be impacted by what we do. The larger scale politics, I mean, you, you said that, and I think I agree, it's, it's not dependent on improved science right. as such. And um, suppose we succeed in reducing uncertainties by factor two or whatever it is, will that change political debates? Unlikely. Right. So you see it as adaptation science kind of what you're saying. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, I know I kind of just asked this in a different way, but since you, I mean, since the main levels, main users are municipal, I mean, if that's the case, what's the, this isn't only, obviously, it's not only a question for you, this is a question for the field as a whole, but I'm just curious how you think about, I mean, right, how, how does the information get delivered to them? I mean, is it, um, you need to, there's some mechanisms yeah. that aren't quite there yet, maybe they're forming. Yeah. I mean, you need to meet people where they are. If you're a planner, you have obviously many constraints to work with, and climate is just one of many. Yeah. And you need to provide people the information in the way that it can enter the planning process easily. And I think what this will mean, the, the obvious thing I would like to see is sort of an ecosystem of apps that is tailored to specific end users, tailored mm-hmm. providing providing the end users with what they need and that will be different for a building designer for a risk manager for uh, real estate purchases you like to have score scores perhaps or some reasonably easy to digest information on flood risk is coming from first street foundation wildfire and the like so i think different users will have very different needs and you need to cater to those needs um i think we haven't seen yet what can be done there especially with simple apps that that access a central API. Hmm. I think there are some people arguing electronically it's only so far you can go. Maybe you need boundary organizations, people right. helping translate that. Yeah. Uh, probably in some areas you need that, but, but let's see how, f- how far you can go reaching people. Mm-hmm. Um, just having climate information on their phones, right? I mean, weather forecasts everyone uses to great economic social benefit and they're easily accessible we have nothing like that for climate and uh, i hope we'll get to the point that we have climate information as easily accessible as weather forecasts are now right but the weather forecast i mean that came after a long history of a lot of people Mm -hmm. doing a lot of things i mean we do have a weather service congress tried to make a climate service got shot down you know some years ago yeah i'm just obviously it's not something that yeah. Claim is going to do on its own, but it's. I, I figured you must have thought about it. Yeah, I mean, I think the 
there's a market demand for it now, that alone, I think. Amazingly so. Yeah. yeah, I mean, do you, how many, I guess another question is how many of your people do you think are going to end up in academia versus the private sector? Private sector is uh, trying to grab them every day at this yeah, point. I mean, we had people go to Google, to NVIDIA, and it's interesting, I think, among the, uh, the early career scientists now, I would say it might be the majority who want to go in the private sector. Yeah. That has completely changed. Right. It's right. a large fraction. How do you feel about that? Well, individually in each case, of course, that's fine. And people need to see what for themselves makes sense. And, you know, um, the positions, many of the private sector positions are attractive. You still do climate research. You still do what we do now. You just do it with stable funding and with far fewer obligations that you have as an academic. Collectively, uh, well, if, if it would come to the point that all the brightest people will leave academia, it would start to be a worry about who will train the next generation of scientists that we still need. Right. I mean, I, right. I, I was trying to get, I mean, so when I asked how do you feel about it, it was a deliberate phrase. I mean, I, all that, that's, as my therapist would say, like, that's a very rational response, Tapio. But, like, I, I have the emotional, re- it hurts for me. I mean, I, I, on the one hand, as you said, individual level makes total sense. I'm actually really happy that these private sector jobs exist. For a lot of people, you know, it, it's what they want to do, and it makes sense. But I can't help having a, and I try not to put this on them because it's just like, you know, you know, it's like uh, I was talking to somebody else, and they were saying, like, yeah, you don't want to be the person who's like harassing the kid to like, stay on the family farm or whatever, because it's, you know, nobody's going to be left to run it. But it is, it, it does hurt a little bit to see these people who you know would have successful academic careers, just look at us and be like, nah, you know. Yeah, but it's, I think that's not quite what it is. I mean, the people I see is they, they are still doing our work just in a different setting. And yeah. to me, I think it's a great opportunity. I mean, just imagine the scale that's possible if, big tech companies get involved in providing climate information to the public. They just can do things that, well, certainly university can't do, but even government can't do. Yes. And I think, I, think that's a, I think that's tremendous, and the challenge is to channel it in a direction that serves the public good, allows, allows you to do good while, while doing well. Yes, I, mean, I agree 100% with all of that. I'm totally pro-private sector. As I said, I'm thrilled these jobs exist, and I'm thrilled for the individuals for getting them in most cases, but I think well, I think the issue of, of channeling it for the public good is significant. I mean, the incentives, you know, of the capital system are not always in favor of, of that, as we know. So that's an issue. But more broadly, I'm just I just have an emotional reaction. It's hard sometimes yeah. because I, you know, I came up not seeing that as an option. It wasn't an option. I mean, to go yeah. to the private sector basically meant to leave the field. Right. I didn't really think about it, but I mean. And yeah, somebody does have to train the next generation. Yeah. And yeah, I think academia main, is going to always have a role. I mean, even in fields where the private sector is really well developed, um, you probably know better than I do. But Silicon Valley, biotech, whatever you name it, I mean, I think they have trouble holding on to people. But on the other hand, the, you know, the academic institutions still have an important function. And we right. Want to stay right. healthy. And and we will stay that yeah. way. And I think, I think there is, for us as a field, a huge amount to be gained by working closely with the private sector. That's yeah. the, the scale of, along the scale of compute that's available. It, it's yeah. just astonishing what you can do. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Should we talk about Switzerland for a minute? We can talk about Switzerland for a minute. Yes. What happened? Oh, Chiara, my wife, wanted to be closer to her family. Um, you know, we had two very young kids at the time. Still young, but not quite as young. So they were, it was 2012, I think. So they were just born and two years old. And um, the opportunity arose to go to EDH. And I, I wasn't too excited about it at first. There were sort of the arguments that people make, the air is cleaner and you look at the air quality data, it's not actually better in Zurich than in Los Angeles and such things. Really? No, it's not. It's, it's interesting, actually. <laughs> I still have the same problem as, as an LA inversion and then there's a lot of diesel engines and uh, home fireplaces and stuff like that. So air quality actually isn't great. But anyway, that wasn't... It was actually a conversation we had at home, but not, not really decisive one way or another. Um, EDH is a... I mean, if, if you want to go to Europe, it's... It's a fantastic place. It has very generous funding, federal funding. It's mm -hmm. a very good students. And Zurich is, is you know, a very livable, beautiful place. Yeah. And so you know, it was sort of the geographical middle between Italy and well, Finland, where my parents are half of the year, and Germany not too far. So it made sense to give it a try. And we, we went. Yeah. But it was mostly... I mean, people always blame the family, but it was really mostly Chiara, which was driving that at the time. And, you know, we had a good time there. I think we were, we were on the fence about coming back. It wasn't, it wasn't a clear-cut thing. About, right. I think pretty soon we felt we wanted to live in the U.S. again, in good part, thinking it'll be better for our kids. Um, and yet, I think the university is wonderful. We had great colleagues. It was a very nice place to work, good place to work. And it was, it was a bit difficult to decide. And was it, I mean, was what was decisive was the feeling that, I mean, so what you're doing now, did you already have that vision? I mean, did you have the vision? Of, I'm trying to remember yeah. the timeline. You just sort of spelled yeah, it out. Actually, I did, I did think about doing what what we do now with Klima in, in Switzerland. In some ways, it would have been easier to do because funding is much more readily available than it is in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, that played a role. I mean, scientifically, the one factor that perhaps mattered a bit is that in our field, we really benefit from people coming from physics, math, engineering disciplines as undergrad, working with us mm -hmm. in grad school. And that's a bit difficult in the Swiss system. Um, it's PhD is relatively short, and it's much easier to go the linear path. Meaning you, know, you stay in the same, stay in the same field and say, you know, we have benefited from, for example, extremely bright students from China, uh, trying yeah. our groups as grad students. And in principle, they could, but the way the funding works in, in Switzerland, that it's really only after the master's that the PhD is funded, but not mm -hmm. after the bachelor's, it made it harder to I get see. those types of students. And in, in a small field like ours, that matters, right, to really get the brightest from anywhere in the world. So for Chiara, it was less of an issue of mechanical engineering. There was great students from all over Europe, especially, and, right. and internationally. It wasn't an issue for her. But I think, I don't think that was decisive in the end. It played some role. It was really a sense of, it would be better for our kids to grow up Why? here. Well, I mean, here we are, uh, yeah, we are immigrants, but we are part of the social fabric. We are U.S. citizens. We are 
fully participating in, right. in everything. And, you know, in Switzerland, if you're foreigners, and it's clear you would remain a foreigner for a long time, if uh-huh. not for essentially ever. And <laughs> you mean culturally in some sense? And yeah, culturally and yeah, just, just in every sense. Okay, yeah. well, we'll see what happens with the audio issues, but um, but uh, great. Thank, thank you, you so much for thank doing you, this. Adam. Yeah, thank you, Adam. Thank you for doing it. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. It's nice talking with you. Okay. You heard it here, folks. What an amazing scientist and amazing guy. Talking about himself at great length, like he did there, is not something Tapio Schneider does readily. But I'm so happy, so honored that he did it with me here. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli, and our editing and audio post-production are by Duotone Audio Group, where our editor, post-producer, and audio engineer are all Eugenio Gonzalez. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection.